Well, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Job. We're going to be, begin our time in the Word today, picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Job chapter 2, verse 11. Job chapter 2, verse 11. I ask you to listen carefully this morning as I read to you one of the darkest, one of the most emotionally raw passages that we find anywhere in the inspired Word of God. Job 2, beginning at verse 11. I remind you once again, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now when Job's three friends heard all of the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Or why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not and dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light hidden from a man given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, and trouble comes. I've entitled the message this morning, A Grief Observed. Some of you will probably know I didn't come up with that title myself. I borrowed it from C.S. Lewis, a man who wrote and published a little book by the same title back in 1960, shortly after his wife passed away from cancer. 
During his long career as a professor and as a Christian author and apologist, Lewis wrote two books that deal specifically with the difficult subject of evil and suffering in the world. The first book that he wrote on the subject, which is probably the better known of the two works, is called The Problem of Pain. It was published 20 years earlier in the year 1940. In this book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis offers a compelling argument to demonstrate that the realities of evil and suffering and pain in the world are not sufficient to rule out the existence of an all-powerful, all-benevolent God who is revealed to us in the pages of inspired Scripture. The problem of pain was Lewis's philosophical and theological answer to the problem of evil and suffering, an example of what we would call a theodicy. I imagine that many of us will recognize at least one famous quotation from that book. Lewis off-quoted dictum that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. You know, 20 years after publishing that well-reasoned book on the problem of evil, Lewis published a second book that dealt with the same subject from a very different point of view. The problem of pain was his intellectual answer to the problem of evil. His second book, A Grief Observed, was his emotional response, totally different in tone and structure, intensely personal, intensely emotional. A Grief Observed was written by an older, grief-stricken Lewis who is dealing with the grim reality of suffering firsthand. As he watched the disease of cancer ravage the body of the one woman he ever came to truly love, a woman who he had only married three years earlier. It's probably the most shocking of all of Lewis's writing. A book that was so honest, so candid about his struggles with faith in the middle of the storm, it caused some of his readers to think that Lewis had abandoned the faith altogether and become an agnostic, which of course he hadn't. I want to read for you a few quotations from that book revealing the state of his heart and mind during that difficult season of pain and loss. Quotations, I think, that will resonate deeply with the chapter we're looking at today. Here are some of the things that Lewis said in the depths of his pain. Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion I'll listen to submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Or again, not that, I not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not, oh, so there's no God after all. But, oh, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew that already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, He makes us occupy the dock and the witness box and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. Pretty honest stuff coming from one of the most prominent Christian writers and thinkers of the past century. 
Some people in our modern Western world have been surprised, even shocked, that a man like Lewis would vent his feelings, his emotions so openly and honestly, instead of holding those emotions deeply inside, putting on a happy face like so many of us do when we're wrestling with God, when we're going through seasons of deep suffering and pain. Some of us are very surprised, very uncomfortable by that level of honesty and candor. In reality, we shouldn't be if we've ever taken the time to read portions of God's Word like the one that we're looking at today. A chapter that deals with this very subject. A chapter in the book of Job that is darkness with hardly any light. Read the Bible from cover to cover, Christian. You will discover a number of chapters very much like this one. Chapters where real believers with real faith in God are wrestling with real issues and real pain and real questions, sometimes even with real disappointment with God. The book of Psalms contains a number of chapters like this. The inspired psalmist pours out his deepest emotions, his anguish, his disappointment in poetic form. Psalm 44, for example, contains these daring words directed towards God. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our aid. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Believe it or not, that's in the Bible. And we hear this cry and similar cries of anguish and despair scattered throughout the Scripture from some of our greatest heroes of faith. Moses had a few moments like this on his journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Elijah the prophet sunk for a time into a deep, dark depression where he believed that death in the grave would be far better than life in ministry. King David felt this way when he was running away from evil men who wanted him dead, including one of his very own children. Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, once cursed the day of his birth, most likely quoting from this very chapter in the book of Job. Prophet Jonah was deeply disappointed with God's kindness and mercy towards evil men he didn't think deserved it. And then we have the New Testament, where we meet Mary of Bethany who scolds Jesus for showing up late. The downcast travelers on the road to Emmaus? What about the souls of the men and women under the altar, martyred for the faith, who are right now crying out, O Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge and judge our blood from those who live on the earth? And how in a sermon like this one could we neglect to mention the cries and the prayers of our Lord Jesus Himself? as he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and then cried out on Calvary's cross, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? You see, friends, a person who knows his or her Bible well will not be surprised by examples of emotion, honesty. You will not be surprised to hear the sense that God has forgotten about us. The sense that God has let us down. The sense that God is slow in fulfilling His promises. 
The sense that God is unjust in allowing the wicked to prosper while the righteous suffer. Yet I think when we come to a chapter like this one in Job 3, a chapter that is so dark and so raw and so honest, many of us still feel very uncomfortable, very unsettled in our hearts by what we read, and we wonder how a man of God could possibly speak in this way. Maybe a chapter like this will even stir some thoughts and emotions that we have had at one time or another over the course of our lives, but we never dared to verbalize to another Christian, and especially not to verbalize to God. After all, didn't we grow up singing songs that suggested that the true Christian is now happy all the day? And didn't that well-intentioned evangelist tell me that God has a wonderful plan for my life, that all of my deepest felt needs would be answered when I gave my life to Christ? And didn't that popular TV preacher tell me, God wants me to be a winner. God wants me to live my best life now. Name whatever you want in faith, then claim it in the name of Christ and He'll have to give it to you because you're a child of the King. Brothers and sisters, in a culture like ours that sees blessing and prosperity, peace and happiness as the ultimate good, the natural consequence of following God, we come to a chapter like this one in Job 3 or in Psalm 44, Psalm 88, Jeremiah 20. We're not sure what to do with it. Except maybe to turn the page quickly with a blush of embarrassment and move on to greener pastures and happier parts of God's Word where everything is sunshine and rainbows and blessing and prosperity. Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, we are not going to skip over this part of God's Word with embarrassment. We're going to take a long, hard look at this part of God's Word because we adhere to the principle we outlined last week. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. When it comes to the Word of God, we do not get to pick and choose what we want to believe like some kind of all-you-can-eat buffet. It is an all-or-nothing proposition. And that means, brothers and sisters, Job 3 is every bit as much a part of God's Word, every bit as inspired, every bit as profitable for our instruction as Ephesians 1 or John 3 or Psalm 23 or any other one of your favorite passages from the Bible. Indeed, I think for some of us here this morning, this part of God's Word is exactly the kind of medicine that we need. To throw off some of the false notions of unbridled happiness and prosperity and to get real with God. To get real with one another. As we work our way through the inspired text this morning, we're going to look firstly at Job's cursing in verses 1-10, to 10, and secondly at Job's questioning in verses 11 to 26, along the way, we will draw out some implications from the text that I hope and pray will be of great help when you or I are called to walk through a season of suffering, or perhaps when you and I are called to walk along someone else who is going through a time of suffering and grief. Last time you recall, I hope we were introduced to this righteous man named Job who lived about 4,000 years ago. A man who was not sinless, or perfect by any means, but yet a man whose heart had been touched by the Spirit of God, a man who delighted in the true worship of God, who strove on a daily basis to do what's right in the eyes of God. Job was a righteous man. And we know he was a righteous man because God tells us so in the text, not once, not twice, but three times. 
And we learned last week, this good, this righteous man named Job was called by God to endure incredible suffering, far more suffering, far more pain than you or I will likely experience an entire lifetime. He was a victim of various kinds of evil and suffering. The victim of what philosophers like to call natural evil. What you and I would probably call a natural disaster. A fire that destroyed his servants and his livestock. A tornado that knocked down the house where his children were celebrating a birthday, killing them instantly. A horrible disease that covered his body in painful boils, turning him into a homeless outcast, leaving him outside in the town dump on a heap of ashes, scraping himself with a broken shard of pottery. Job knew what it was to suffer from natural disaster, from disease. He also knew what it was to suffer moral evil. Sabaean Chaldean raiders who swooped in on his property, stole his possessions, and killed his servants in cold blood. If anyone knew what it means to suffer, that man was Job, a man who had everything a person could dream of, and a man who lost everything within the span of a few days. We also concluded last time, Job's trial was not an accident, it was not a coincidence, Rather, it was initiated by God Himself and for reasons that Job never fully came to understand. As readers, we are given a backstage pass to see what was happening behind the curtain in heaven, but so far as we can tell, Job never got to peek behind the curtain. And when we peeked backstage last time, we learned this. It was not Satan that brought Job to God's attention. It was God that brought Job to Satan's attention. And when Satan took the bait and called God's worth into question, suggesting that God is worshipped by the righteous only because of the good gifts that He gives us, not because of who He truly is in and of Himself, when Satan did that, God made the decision to defend His own honor and to give Job a role to play in the display of His glory to the cosmos. The prologue of Job is crystal clear. It is God who initiates the trial in his life. But as we emphasized last time, God does not directly tempt this man with evil, nor is he the author of sin. Rather, what we learn from the first two chapters is that God's sovereignty extends over all of the trials we face in this life. And yes, his sovereignty even extends over Satan himself so that Satan and his demonic minions can do nothing here on earth that the sovereign God does not allow. Satan may be the prowling lion, as the Apostle Peter tells us, but that lion is on a leash. That lion can be muzzled and pulled back by the God who created him and who will one day destroy him in hell. And so among other lessons that we learn in this book, Job teaches us we should not think of God and Satan as two equal opposite powers who are fighting for control of the universe, but rather to think of our God as the king of everything and Satan as a created being who is totally subordinate and totally subject. Well, in the case of Job, God permitted Satan to go on the attack two times to release all of this natural, all of this moral evil into his life. But as we also observe, the prologue of Job ends with tremendous spiritual victory over the adversary. Instead of cursing God in the midst of his suffering, Job instead worships God. And he does it with the stunning words we read in chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And again in chapter 2, verse 10, we hear incredible wisdom coming from Job's mouth in response to his wife's folly. 
Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In the crucible of affliction, Job affirms the complete sovereignty of God. He chooses to worship the sovereign God instead of cursing Him. And with those amazing words that come out of the mouth of this righteous man, Satan was defeated. God's honor was vindicated. In a nutshell, that is what we covered last week. We move on now to the last few verses of chapter 2. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to him and show sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. The inspired narrator has already introduced us to the main character, Job. In these concluding verses of chapter 2, we are introduced to three of Job's friends who have traveled a long distance to sympathize with him, to try to be a comfort and an encouragement to him. We're going to learn a lot more about these guys in the weeks to come, so for now I want to mention their names. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three men have traveled a long distance to comfort Job during his time of affliction. I think it's fair to say that their most helpful work was done here in verses 11 to 13 as they sit with Job in silence and solidarity for a period of seven days. And after this extended week of mourning and misery and silence, the best thing that these men could have possibly done was to get up off the ash heap where they were sitting and go back where they came from. But as we will see next time, it's all downhill from here. As Job's three friends open their mouths and spew out what they consider to be biblical wisdom, the end of the story, these men will turn out to be more like enemies and opponents. They add to Job's misery. At this point in the narrative, however, there's nothing to criticize and there is much to admire. So let me just stop and say at this point, by way of application, one of the best ways that you and I can come alongside a person who is going through a severe time of suffering is not to open our big mouths and spill out all the answers we think will be helpful and insightful, but rather to keep our mouths closed and just to be present. Just to be with them in their time of pain. Just to let them know that we're there. That we care. There's a time to speak. There's a time to refrain from speaking. Wisdom is knowing the difference. You see, a person in pain generally doesn't need you or I to say, I told you so, or to tell them what they did wrong, or to suggest how they can fix the problem, or even to quote from Romans 8.28 and tell them that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Sometimes people in pain just need to know you're there. And that's exactly what these three friends did for Job during the first seven days of their visit. And then the silence is broken. Job opens his mouth for the first time and he utters a bitter, caustic curse that we read in chapter 3. Job 3 is what we call a lament. As I've already mentioned before, there are many other examples of laments scattered throughout the Bible, especially the poetic laments that are concentrated in the book of Psalms. 
The difference here with Job's lament is that there's not even a faint glimmer of hope or light in his words. Most of the other examples of lament that we find in the Bible begin on a note of discouragement and despair and then gradually work their way upward from the depth so that they conclude on a note of hope, an expression of trust in God's salvation and deliverance. Now, Here in Job chapter 3, you will notice there is gloom and doom, not even a glimmer of light from beginning to end. This is one of the most, the darkest passage in the entire Bible. It is to be placed right alongside Psalm 88 where the inspired poet ends his song by telling us, darkness is my only friend. You know, I think Job could relate to that. A man who is down in the dumps because of what has happened to him. He's lost all hope for the future. He feels there's nothing left to live for. According to this text, his worst fears have come true. Now the only thing that he hopes for, so he can think, is a quick death that will put him out of his misery and just end it all that will put his soul at rest. Job's dark lament in chapter 3 is broken down into two parts. In verses 1-10, to he begins by cursing the day of his birth. Then in verses 11-26, to he transitions into a series of why questions that end with dark and depressing sigh of despair. As we look first of all in the first ten verses at Job's cursing, I want to point out nothing that Job says in these verses contradicts what he said, what he affirmed back in chapters 1 and 2. You remember that Job's wife encouraged him to curse and to blaspheme God, even to commit suicide, but Job adamantly refused. And although chapter 3 does begin with cursing, we need to realize these curses are not directed towards God, but rather they are directed towards his circumstances. Job is venting here in chapter 3. He's venting from the deepest, darkest recesses of his heart, but he is not blaspheming. He is not cursing God. We need to be clear about that. Now later on in the book, Job is going to get perilously close to blaspheming God in the things he says. But I don't believe there's any blasphemy in in chapter 3. And I don't think that Job even commits a sin by anything that he speaks here out of the deep anguish of his heart. To be sure, the words that Job speaks here are strong. These are sobering words. But I don't believe they are sinful words. These are words of a man who is being brutally honest with God and brutally honest with himself. The words of a man like Jacob who is wrestling with God, who is struggling with God. don't want to delve too deeply into the psychology of suffering and grief this morning. I think it's true to say many people who grieve a terrible loss, many people who pass through difficult times of suffering can relate to Job. Many people begin their trial with hope in God. Perhaps even saying as Job did that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But as the trial drags on, as the pain refuses to subside, doubts begin to enter the mind. Bitterness begins to well up in the heart. The why questions begin to bubble to the surface. Sometimes the optimism, the hope we held on to at the beginning of the trial begins to wear thin as the days pass by and the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months. And nothing changes. And we begin to wonder whether God is listening to our prayer. Whether God even cares at all. I've never been there myself. I think that's where Job is here in chapter 3. Not yet cursing God. 
not blaspheming God with his mouth, but in his heart beginning to question God's wisdom, to doubt God's goodness. Perhaps the cruel words that his wife spoke to him a week earlier have been replaying over and over in his mind, and he's wondering if she was right all along. Maybe the best thing to do at this point is just to give up, to die. And so Job opens his mouth and begins to bitterly curse the day of his birth. You know, when we were kids, we could hardly wait to celebrate our next birthday. Then we reach adulthood and we reach a certain point where we wish that the birthdays wouldn't come so quickly. Job has gone way beyond that. Job has come to the point in his life where he wishes that he was never born at all. The first half of verse 3, he curses the day he was born. The second half of verse 3, he goes on to curse the night he was conceived. Now this might be a little bit beside the point this morning, but I think it's worth mentioning in a culture like ours. The modern day advocates of abortion have tried their best to convince us that human life and human personhood does not begin until a baby is born. The biblical perspective is that life begins at conception. Job believed that life begins at conception. That's the reason why he does not only curse the day he was born, but he also curses the night he was conceived. This is dark. This is depressing stuff. Job is cursing his birthday. And as many of the commentators have pointed out, all of the imagery here in these verses about darkness and blackness is highly suggestive of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. It's almost as if Job is wishing that God's creative work could be undone because it has resulted in so much pain. When God first created the world, He pronounced His creation as something that was good. But now Job is calling that divine declaration into question. He is suggesting that God may have made a mistake in creating the world. Or at the very least, Job thinks that God made a mistake in creating him. Allowing him to come into the world as a little baby and to see the light of day. And Job is so bitter in his cursing. In verse 8, he seems to extend an invitation for others to join him. A sarcastic invitation to the pagan magicians and sorcerers to join him in his cursing. Men like Balaam the prophet who could be professionally hired to curse. And Job wishes in his depths of despair these men would come that they would help to rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan, by the way, is a mythical sea monster in ancient Near Eastern literature, a popular symbol in that culture for chaos, for destruction, for desolation. Are you getting the picture? Job would give anything he could if he could turn back the clocks, if he could remove his name from the annals of history. He believes that God made a mistake in creating him. And then we get to verse 11. And the why questions begin to pour out. Why did I not die at birth? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breasts that I should nurse? Why was I not hidden as a stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Why is light given to him who's in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedged in? Why? 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 In these verses, we get the picture of a man who sees death as his only way out of misery. Death is the only option that will truly set his troubled soul at rest. 
We read Job's comments here about death and the afterlife. We need to keep in mind the context in which he lived. Job lived 4,000 years ago during the time of Abraham and the patriarchs, a time when God had not yet revealed a great deal of information about what comes after death. Job lived before most of the Bible was written. And I think that a lack of clear revelation is reflected in some of the comments he makes here about death and grave and the afterlife. Now as biblical history unfolds, as more information is revealed by God through the prophets, through Jesus Christ, through the apostles, our understanding of the afterlife is going to become more clearly focused. And God's people will eventually come to understand there are two destinations for anyone who dies and goes into the grave. Either they will go to hell and they will have bodies resurrected to eternal damnation, or else they will go to heaven and have bodies resurrected for eternal life in God's kingdom. Those are the two biblical options presented to us in the entirety of Scripture. Either eternal life through Jesus Christ, or else either eternal damnation apart from Him. But God hasn't revealed all of that yet. Job doesn't understand all of that as clearly as you and I do today. And from Job's vantage point, death in the grave seems to be the great leveler. A place where the wicked cease from troubling, where the weary are at rest. A place where prisoners are at ease, where they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. This is Job's understanding of death in the grave. Although later on in chapter 19, we are going to see Job has a glimmer of hope of seeing the Redeemer, perhaps even the hope of a future bodily resurrection. But at this moment in misery, all that Job can think about is how to escape his pain. And for him, death in the grave seemed to be the most desirable option. Certainly far better than living out his days on the ash heap. You know, sadly, there are many people in our world today who've gotten to this dark place. Depression. Discouragement. Many people in our world today have concluded, as Job did, the only solution to life's great problems and trials is death. Why do we have euthanasia legislation here in Canada? Sometimes that happens in the lives of non-believers. And yes, sometimes it happens in the lives of believers like Job. There are many examples of Christians in the throes of dark depression who have attempted to take their own lives. Some who have even succeeded. I've known some people like that. I've even known a pastor like that. By God's grace, I've never been there myself, but I know many people who have. Some of them are sitting in this very room. And although there is no hint in the text that Job is considering suicide, there is no question that Job sees death as the answer to his problem. He wishes at this moment that God would just strike him down, finish him off. You know, friends, I don't believe for a minute that everyone who sinks into a deep depression and takes their own life goes to hell. I do know this. Anyone who, who dies apart from Jesus Christ and His forgiveness will go there. And in light of that sobering truth, how tragic it is to know that many hurting people in our world who seek death as the answer to life's pain and suffering will wake up on the other side only to realize that suffering and pain have only begun. For the Christian believer, death and the grave hold no fear because we know and believe that Jesus has defeated those enemies through His cross. But for the non-believer who does not know Jesus Christ, death is not rest. Death is not escape from trouble. Death is rather an entrance into an eternity of suffering and separation from the love 
and the grace of our God. And if you ever get to this point in your life, whether you know Jesus Christ or not, if you ever get to this dark place of depression and despair where death and the grave seem better than life, I would urge you not to suffer in silence, but to let somebody know how you're feeling. And especially to let God know how you're feeling. This is one reason why it's so vitally important for us to recapture the biblical practice of lament. To get past these false destructive theologies that says, now that I'm a Christian, I'm happy all the day. God is not interested in our masks. God is not interested in false religious facades. He wants us to be honest about our struggles. He wants us to be real. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be the place where we can be honest. Where we can seek help. Where we can seek refuge. Where we can find healing. Where we can learn the path of salvation. The place where we can be gently reminded about God's steadfast love and His faithfulness, even when it does not seem to be true in our personal experience. During this season of his life, Job thought that death was the answer. Many people in our world today believe that death is the answer. Jesus Christ says this, I have come that you may have life, that you may have it abundantly. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so friends, if we truly want to experience rest for our souls, there's only one place where we can truly find it. As we conclude our time in this difficult portion of God's Word, what are some practical lessons we can take from it? One lesson that we need to take away from this dark page in Job's life is an understanding that being in God's will does not mean protection from depression and suffering and pain and trial. I hope that you understand that this morning. I hope that you will never ever forget it. This idea that we have promoted here in North America that says that being in God's will results in happiness and prosperity and blessing, a rescue from suffering, is nothing more than a lie from the very pit of hell. Now I know, brothers and sisters, that message of health, wealth, and prosperity is a popular one today for many people in the church and for many people outside of the church. But let me tell you this morning, on the authority of God's holy inspired word, it is a diabolical lie written by Satan himself. Because here's the thing, if God always blesses the righteous, if God has a wonderful plan for your life that will make you happy all the day, then what on earth do we make of a man like Job? What do we make of a man like this who is suffering precisely because he is following God, because he is at the very center of God's will? What do we make of a man like the Apostle Paul, beaten, imprisoned, slandered, Beheaded for being at the very center of God's will? What do we make of a man like Jesus Christ who went to the cross as an innocent man for doing the will of God ordained from the foundation of the world? No, brothers and sisters, being in God's will does not mean protection from suffering and pain and trials and tribulation. If you have bought into that lie which pervades so much of our theology and thinking in North America, my prayer is that God will use the book of Job to open your eyes to the truth. 
to prepare you for the reality. You will eventually go through suffering. You will eventually go through pain. You will experience circumstances in your life that will cause you to question your faith, to wonder if God really loves you, to wonder whether God is really there. And so, brother and sister in Christ, be encouraged the next time you slip into a season of deep discouragement and disillusionment with God, a righteous man named Job was there before you. And the truth is that Job doesn't end here. God brings him through. God enables him by his grace to persevere. Job thought that death was the answer. Job was wrong. Second lesson I think we need to take from this chapter is to understand that depression is a very real battle for some of our Christian brothers and sisters. In some cases, it is a battle that will never be fully overcome in this life. Great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my personal heroes of the faith, was a man who struggled greatly with depression during a time when very few people understood it, either inside of the church or outside of it. There are many different quotations, many stories I could tell you about Charles Spurgeon and his struggle with depression, but one Sunday morning, Spurgeon mounted into the pulpit. He was in the throes of a dark depression, and he began his sermon like this. I have to speak to myself, he said. And whilst I shall be endeavoring to encourage those who are distressed and downhearted, I shall be preaching, I trust to myself, for I need something which shall cheer my heart. Why, I cannot tell. Wherefore, I do not know. I have a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. My soul is cast down within me. I feel as though I would rather die than live. All that God has done by me seems forgotten. My spirit flags, my courage breaks down. I need your prayers. Imagine beginning a sermon like that. Another time Spurgeon said this to his congregation. He said, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. There are dungeons, he said, beneath castles of despair. Those of you here this morning who know Jesus but yet struggle deeply with dark bouts of depression and discouragement should take heart this morning from the fact that you are not the only Christian who has walked down this difficult road. Good and godly men like Charles Spurgeon have been there too. For the rest of us who have not been there yet, for the rest of us who have not experienced the type of depression that makes the heart sick, that makes death look like a friend, let us be sure to walk alongside those of our brethren who do struggle and to pray for them, to hold them up, to be with them even as they sit in the ash heap mourning. The truth is, not everyone in the church is ready to sing, it is well with my soul. And sometimes the most honest thing that we can do is to say with our brother Job, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, and trouble comes. Most importantly, whenever we do go through times of depression or discouragement, suffering in our lives for whatever reason, let us always remember that the sovereign God who ordains these trials to come into our lives is also the suffering God who came into this world to face rejection and discouragement and temptation and ultimately to die on the cross for the sins of anyone and everyone who would ever turn from their sins and believe in Him. 
We may never understand the reasons for our suffering. We may never be given all of the answers to the why questions that we ask during seasons of pain and doubt, but we can know for sure Jesus Christ, the God-man, understands what it means to suffer. And Jesus knows more than any one of us. He knows more than Job did what it means to be forsaken by God. We at times may feel as though the Heavenly Father has forsaken us. The Lord Jesus was forsaken by the Father. And He was forsaken on account of our sins. And so broken-hearted Christian, weighed down with trouble and care, take heart this morning with these inspired words from the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.